0: 1 John 4, 16-18, here we go. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Father, please teach us your word today. Please write uh, the truths that we'll read about on our hearts. God, I pray that we would fear you above all else. God, I pray that your love poured into us would be so visible in and through us that we would have great confidence in the day of judgment. God, remove false confidence from us. Help us not to lean upon that which does not does not give us assurance. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's passage is about the fear of judgment. Uh, first thing we got to do, though, is establish: is this even worth looking at? Okay, because here's the reality: if there's nothing to fear in the judgment of God, then we're going to waste our time today. Okay. Uh, If if there's nothing to fear, there's no need to to give a sermon about not fearing something, right? I mean, how silly would it be for me to get up here and say, all right, guys, I'm going to give you a 40-minute lecture on the fear of butterflies, okay? Because I think most of you would say that's not an issue with me, right? I'm not afraid of butterflies. Some of you might be, I don't know. uh, But most people are probably not afraid of butterflies. And so is there, in reality, something real to fear here? Now, here's the truth. We're all afraid of something. But what I'm asking is, are you afraid of the judgment of God? Okay? We're all afraid of something. That fear is a part of our life. So you may be f- afraid of falling, f- afraid of flying maybe, Afraid of financial ruin, maybe losing someone close to you, maybe speaking in public. A lot of people have that fear. Maybe praying in public, you have a fear of that. Maybe you have a fear of looking silly or being humiliated or going to the dentist or mean dogs or or, or storms. I'm sorry you live in Oklahoma if that's your fear. Uh, maybe you're afraid of the dark or spiders or snakes or being alone or being rejected. There's all kinds of different fears, okay, but the question I'm asking is, is there, should there be A legitimate fear of the wrath of God coming down upon our sins. And here's what the Bible would say. The Bible would say that the judgment of God is so final. It is so irreversible. It contains so much loss and punishment and fury that it is in a category by itself. And in in that category, it should actually rearrange all of our other fears. It should redefine everything else that we're scared of in our lives. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 jesus says this and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell now let me just ask you a question are you afraid of those who kill the body and i think all of us would probably say yeah that's kind of a fear you know if you're traveling in the middle east and you're uh, you're you're grabbed by some hooded men in a truck that says isis on the side of it are you going to be afraid probably so Right? I mean, that's a, I mean, Jesus gives us a pretty big fear. He's not talking about spiders and snakes. He's talking about people who want to kill you. And yet Jesus says, don't fear those who can just kill the body. And you need to fear the one who can kill both, destroy both body and soul in hell. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the fear of God ought to rearrange all the other fears in your life. The fear of God ought to, ought to make everything else in your life look different. In other words, when you understand the fear of God, when you understand the wrath of God, that ought to make spiders and snakes look differently, okay? You're still probably not going to like them, but it's, your, your whole chart got rearranged because you understood the fear of the Lord. Now, now the case I'm going to make to you today is that I don't think most people are afraid of the wrath of God. I don't think most people give that very much thought. And why do we not give that much thought? Why is that not a big thing? I think the answer is, is that we are very accustomed to telling ourselves what we want to hear. You ever do that with fear? Have your kids ever done, I remember when when one of these little guys, I don't remember which one it was, but I was holding them. We were visiting somebody and whoever we were visiting, as we walked up to the house, they had a big dog, like a large dog, okay? And I remember that, that, I think it was a little girl, one of my little girls, I think I remember one of my little girls saying, Daddy, the dog can't get us, right? It can't jump, you know? No, the dog can't jump. The dog could jump over our heads if it wanted to, right? The dog could grab me by the juggler. That's a big dog. But what were they doing? The same thing we do, right? We tell ourselves. Well, no, it's okay. What do people tell themselves about the wrath of God? It's okay. I'm a good person. Good people go to heaven when they die. Where'd you get that? There's a world full of people that believe that. You walk out in the neighborhoods of Woodward, you're going to find house after house after house that believes exactly that. They're convinced of that. Good people go to heaven when they die. I'm a good person, therefore I'm going to heaven. Now, who who told you that? Do they have an eyewitness account, you know? Or they say, well, I believe that because of Uncle George, you know? Uncle George was hit by a freight train, mowed over, dead as all could be, went to heaven, looked around, found out, you know what? It's full of good people, just like me, you know? Came back from the dead, sat down at supper. We were eating with him, and Uncle George told us, hey, guys, don't worry about the heaven deal. You know, it's all full of good people. Just be a good person, and then you go to heaven. Is that why they think that? There's absolutely no evidence that good people go to heaven. In fact, the only person that rose from the dead, the only person that's gone beyond death and come back is Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus told us? Jesus told us, there's nobody good. There's nobody good. You can't get to heaven by being a good person. Jesus was incredibly clear about that. All of Jesus' apostles, his followers were very clear about that. By the way, even if you get past that, how do you know you're a good person? How do we know that? You know the answer to that? I know the answer to that. Our moms told us so, right? (laughs) That's the answer, for real. Your mom told you you were a good person, okay? She told you you were good, you never did anything wrong, you're just the sweetest thing ever, okay? Let me tell you something about your mom. She's an incredible lady, great lady, but she lied to you there, okay? Moms just do that. I don't think they're actually lying. They just genuinely believe it, okay? Because they're moms, all right, but you don't have any evidence that you're even a good person. And, and, and so what we do is we tell ourselves these things. Romans 3.18 says what I believe true about humanity. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So should there be? My answer to that is yes. Why? As we read in the Scriptures about the day of judgment, it is a day said in which God will judge the world in righteousness. God will judge sin. What does that look like? Let me show you that from the scriptures. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hebrews 9, it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes a judgment. There is abundant, clear, consistent evidence in the scriptures from the king of kings that there will be a judgment upon all men. Now, you can say you don't believe it, and that really doesn't matter, actually. It's not going to change whether you're there or not. We will be judged. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, I think very aptly describes this judgment. Matthew 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats where where the last judgment is pictured. And Jesus divides, God divides the believers from unbelievers. Jesus speaks to each group. And then in verse 46, it says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a movement in our world that says that hell is not eternal. It, it's a temporary place, okay? You, you go there either for a little while and then you get out, or some people think that you go there and then, then you're just destroyed, okay? First of all, there is no evidence of that that I can see in the Scriptures. And when you look at Matthew 25, it says these will go away into eternal punishment. These will go away into eternal life. Now, eternal there has to mean the same thing for both, right? And we know that heaven is eternal. There's abundant evidence of that. And so if, if heaven is eternal, he's using the same word and the same verse to describe the condemnation of the damned then hell is an eternal place. What kind of punishment is there? Let's just stick with the verse we've already read. Revelation 20, three times it says this in two verses. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what is the lake of fire? Man, that cannot be good, right? I mean, the Bible describes a place of eternal torment likened to flames. Now, many people will say, well, whoa, Jason, the Bible has to be metaphorical there. Now, why do they believe that? There really isn't any evidence to believe that it's not literal. But again, what do we do with ourselves? We we like to tell ourselves what we want to believe. Okay? but let me just let me just go down that road a little bit let's say you it is just metaphorical okay now what is a metaphor A metaphor is a way of describing something to someone that they can't they, they can't understand right they, they haven't experienced it so we're giving them a metaphor to try to understand so in other words if I get a bee sting on my arm and you've never got stung by a bee and you're like hey what is that like pastor and I say well it's kind of like taking a knife and gouging it into your arm you know that you know that that's what it's like man it hurts like the dickens okay what am I doing I'm giving you a metaphor to describe what what I experienced in a bee sting. All right, so let's say it is a metaphor, okay? So the metaphor the Bible's giving us is that eternally in hell is like being thrown into a lake full of fire. Is that any better? Uh, do, do you see? I mean, does it really make any difference? I mean, I think it's literal. I don't have any reason to believe it's not, okay? But, I, but what I'm saying is, my goodness, even if you believe that, even if you believe it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor for something horrific. 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 9 adds another piece of the puzzle here. Let me read verse 8 to begin with. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That's a helpful thing when I think about hell, to think that what what, what Paul describes there is hell is a place that is away from God, away from His glory, away from His presence which really makes a lot of sense because those who will be there are those who what? Are not interested in God. Who in this life right now, we're like, man, I'm not interested in that. That's a bunch of fooey. I don't want to know God. I don't want to know what he says. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in obeying. I don't really care what he says. I'm going to do what I I want to do. I'm the boss of my life. I'll take control of my life. I don't want God. Hell's a place where God said, okay, you did not want me. You didn't want to be around me. You rejected me. You said over and over again with your life, I don't want you. And hell is a place where God is not. But let's remember what it says. Away from His presence, the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. When you walk outside, you're going to walk out into sun. You're going to walk out into a, a world that is completely fashioned for beauty and goodness and life. Where do we get that world? Well, if you were memorizing your verses this week, Psalm 19.1, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Okay? All of that is a reflection of the glory of God. Family. You enjoy your family? Marriage, your reflection of the glory of God. Parenting, a reflection of the glory of God. God is our heavenly Father. That's why we have fathers on earth. We are His children. That's why we have children on earth. Okay? And so when you take away all of that, Hell is a place where God is not, His glory is not, His gifts are not, His image is not. Hell is a place separated from all that is good forever and ever. Should you fear hell? Yes. When Jesus talks about hell, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What's Jesus doing there? Is he, is he saying, man, here's an effective way not to sin. Just start chopping off body parts, you know? No, he's not. That, that actually doesn't do any good. Sin comes from your heart. What is, what's the point Jesus is making? He's taking the most precious thing that you have. Your eyesight, your right hand, your ability, your right hand represents your ability to do things, to accomplish things, to work, to get things done. Your eyesight, it represents your your ability to take in the beauties of the world, okay? And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, man, if it would make you not sin, if you could avoid hell by gouging out your eyes and cutting off your hands, do it. Do it. It's worth it. It'd be it'd be be better. He would say it would be better to go through life without any of those things than to spend an eternity in hell. What else do we learn about the judgment? We learn in the scriptures that the judgment will be worse for some than others. Now, this is a little controversial, but man, it's just in the scriptures, and so I feel compelled to tell you that Um, it is. Uh, it does seem that there there is a worse judgment for some than others. Now now please don't go the wrong direction with that. Please don't make the ridiculous argument. Well, if it's worse for others than it is for some, then maybe I'll be in the sum and it'll I'll just be in the in the in the in the hot hell. You know you know kind of like it's it's you're on the equator. You know and you got skeeters. You know and I can make it. No, that's that's not at all what the Bible describes. But it does describe it does describe that for some judgment is worse than others. Now here's the thing, though. When we think of worse judgment, we automatically think of bad people. That's not actually what it says. Now, I believe in the justice of God. I believe that that God will truly give justice. And so those who have done wicked things, there will be justice for that. But I want you to listen to what he says about it. Luke 12 is one place. Verse 47 says, And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will and receive it, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom, much, whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Do you you see who gets the worst judgment there? The one who knew more. The one who knew more and rejected. The one who saw continually and rejected. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus describes the judgment on certain cities. And he says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, now, now, Chorazin and Bethsaida were good Jewish cities full of good people, And Jesus says, it's going to be worse for you than Tyre and Sidon. Picture Vegas and Atlantic City. Okay? Tijuana. Why? I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. Remember Capernaum? Capernaum was where Jesus did the majority of his miracles. Good Jewish city. And these folks saw again and again the gospel lived out right in front of them. And Jesus says, "Will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, man, what do you know about Sodom? Talk about a wicked city! Remember the story of that in the Old Testament? It would have remained this day, but I tell you, it'll be more—it'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What is judgment based on? What you did with what you had." Did you hear the gospel over and over? Did you have a grandmother who prayed for you day after day after day? Did you have a mom or a dad who sold the gospel in your life? Did you have a church near you in the neighborhood that, that continually invited you? Did you have people around you, friends, who shared the gospel again and again, and you continually rejected that and rejected that? The Bible says it will be worse for you than that wicked bunch in Sodom on the day of judgment. Because you continue to reject the attempts of God to bring you to himself. Our works are going to play a role in judgment. And that's really what we're getting to here in John. Be patient with me. I'm, this is all setting up. Okay, Our works are going to play a role on the day of judgment. Romans tells us uh, that is true. Now, now, before I read this verse, I, want, I, want, I don't want you to go the wrong direction. Our works are not going to be the basis upon whether we have the wrath of God or escape the wrath of God. Jesus is the basis of that, okay? Whether or not you are joined to Jesus in a faith relationship is the determining factor of whether you escape the wrath of God. Your only hope, my only hope, is to be connected to Jesus in a faith relationship so that He takes my sin and He he, he receives and bears the wrath of God on my behalf and I receive His righteousness. That's my only hope. That's your only hope. But the Bible also says that our deeds will be exhibit A as evidence of whether or not we're connected to Jesus. So, Romans 2, 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, first the Jew and also the Greek. Okay, so so our works will will be exhibit A in the judgment. In fact, the question is often asked, will believers even be in the judgment because if Jesus takes our sin? What does Romans 8 say? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. True. But your life is still going to be set forth as either evidence that you have Christ in you, that God's love was in you and it came out and, and it's visible. Good works were visible by the Holy Spirit. Do you you belong to him? If there's not those, you don't belong to him. 1 Corinthians 3 describes the works of a believer. 3.12. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Even a believer's works, his life will be laid forth. What did you do with the life of Jesus given to you? How did you build on the kingdom of God? And there will be either reward or there will be loss. The question is often asked, well, pastor, how can that be? A lot of people pull back from that because here's the two two reasons I've been given. Number one, well, that can't be because cause, cause that would be glory to us in heaven if you get rewarded. And that can't be, Pastor, because then there'd be if loss is in hell, or if loss is in heaven, how can that be? How, how, can, how can there be loss? How can there be sadness, regret in heaven? Well, I'm I'm just telling you this. First of all, it's the plain truth of the scripture. I just read it. I don't know how to, I don't know how to interpret those verses. Some will suffer loss. What does that mean? You can't just excuse it. Here's what I believe. What you do with this life matters. Okay? You're a believer here today. You've been joined to Jesus Christ. His blood covers you. The wrath of God's not coming to you. All right, listen. What you do with the rest of your life matters. It's not that it doesn't matter. It matters. It will matter eternally. What does it mean to suffer loss in heaven? What does it mean to be rewarded? Honest. I have no idea. And neither does anybody else. Okay? I have my guesses. Since I'm up here talking, let me give you my guess. I believe it. It has to do with the capacity to enjoy Jesus and to enjoy his glory forever. I, I, that's what I believe. I believe some people will have a greater capacity because of, of the deeds, spirit led, spirit empowered deeds that were done through them than others. But I don't know, nor does anybody else. But it says loss and it says reward. What are we saying here? Here's what we're saying there's something to fear. There's something to fear in the judgment. But John wants you to be confident. It's really one of the reasons he wrote this book. Okay? 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John desperately wants you to know, and he wants you to have the right reasons. Because there's a lot of false ones, okay? He, he's talked about that a lot, has not he? First John two four, uh, 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he's a liar. The truth's not in him. Uh, 2, 9. Whoever says that, that, he's, that he's in the light and hates his brother, he's lying. He's still in darkness. Uh, chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, hates his brother, he's a liar. Okay, so John has, has pummeled us with, with, with this, listen, don't, don't put your hope in the wrong confidence, Jesus did the same thing. Remember in Matthew 7? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, that, and the other in your name? And they'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. There is a false confidence. So what is the right confidence? Okay, well, let's look at our text. 1 John 4, 17. How do we know we've escaped the wrath of God? Verse John four seventeen. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Okay, perfected love. All right, are you holding that? Perfected love. Confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, perfected love, casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. So John's telling us that we can know, we can know, we can be sure that we've escaped the wrath of God, we can have confidence in the day of judgment based on if we have perfected love in our life. Now, what is perfected love? Let me tell you what it's not. It's not perfect love in the sense of We've never messed up. That's not what that word means. John doesn't use it that way. First John one eight. We've all sinned, right? If you say you're not, sin, if you say you're not a sinner, you're lying. So what does it mean when he says perfected love? Well, well the Greek there, teleos, it means it means the the finished product, the process of completion. It means uh, maturity uh, to reach its goal, to bring to an end, to finish. Okay, so it's perfect in the sense of the circuit has been complete, right? Let me give you some illustrations, okay? Let me give you some illustrations of what this word perfect means, all right? I'm going hunting, all right? I got my shotgun. You guys saw me? I take out a shell, put it in the magazine, okay? It's got to it's pump. I pump it into the chamber. Got a shell in the chamber now. Walking, I see a pheasant. I take aim. I put, click off the safety, and I squeeze that trigger. Nothing. Silence. That is not perfected, Right? Not complete, not finished, didn't reach its goal, right? There should have been a boom. There should have been bullets. There should have been a dead pheasant. There should have been supper, okay? None of that happened. Not complete. It's your birthday. It was Ed Evans' birthday yesterday. I asked him how old he was. He never returned my text. I'm going to just, hey, you know when a guy does that, I'll tell you how old he is. He's 82. I mean, I don't know. He should have answered, right? Right? Ted's birthday, here comes Marilyn with a cake. Lots of candles, things flaming. All family, happy birthday to you. Right? Sing it, right? Make a wish, honey. That's all the further it goes, right there. Everything stops. No blowing out the candles. They just burn down. The wax goes all over the cake. Slowly, everybody kind of leaves the dining room, goes off, watches TV. Some folks got to go. That was it. That was not perfect, was it? it, was, it that's not what should have happened. There should have been a result. There should have been blowed out candles and smoke and taking them off and cutting the cake and eating it. and Stopped. It's, it's an interesting word in the New Testament. It's used a bunch, actually. In James 2, one of the most important passages in the Bible, it talks about faith must, must be perfected by works, completed by works. What, what does that mean? Well, James 2, 22. You see then that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. In other words, in order for the cycle of faith to be complete, for it to finish, for it to accomplish its goal, there's got to be an action, there's got to be works, right? The illustration we always use is Noah. Right? Noah hears from God. Gonna flood the earth. Everybody's gonna die. The only way to be saved, build an ark. Noah's like, Lord, I believe. I believe you. I have faith in you, God. I hear your word and I believe it. And then he goes off, and he and Mrs. Noah get a membership to the gym. Mrs. Noah's trying to lose a little weight for bikini season, you know. Noah, Noah takes a private lesson with a golf pro, try to get his slice straightened out. They plant a little almond orchard, hoping that in a couple of years we'll have some almonds. Whoa, Noah! Faith was not perfected, buddy. Right? I mean, if, there, if there's no building of the ark, did he really believe? Okay, so all that to say, come back into our text. How do we how do we know we are free from the judgment of God? Verse seventeen: By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Perfected love. Okay. Now, what's that process? Well, let's back up. One verse, verse 16. So we have come to know and believe that the, the, the love that God has for us. Okay. Here's where it always begins. God loves us, right? He loves us first. That's what verse 19 says. We love because He loved us first. Ver, John has been clear about that this entire time. God has loved us first. He's put His love in us. If you're a believer here today, God has loved you. He has demonstrated His love in the gospel. He has demonstrated His love through His Son. He has put His love inside of you. Great, but it should be perfected, right? It doesn't stop there, does it? Is that where it stops, church? Do we just, God, thank you for your love. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for dying on the cross. God, I just received that love, and then that's it, nothing. No no, living it out, no being like Jesus, no transformation of your life. No, no, not at all. So there's got to be this receiving of the love of God. It must begin there. That's where it begins, okay? Okay. It begins there, and then it goes out of you. I really think people get really frustrated with me in counseling. Maybe some of you have come to me with relationship problems, you know, problem with your spouse, problem with your your kids or whatever. And and like I'll I'll try to doctor fill it a little bit because people like that, you know, give some practical things. But then I always come back to the gospel. I always come right back to the cross, right back to God's love for you, right back to what God has done for you, how He's pursued you, how He's forgiven you, how He's given, been gracious to you. If you're a believer, you've received all of that from God. Why do we always come back there? That's really where the only power is to love anybody. It's got to begin there, receiving God's love. And if that is in us, now, now it can come out. Not can, it has to. It's got to come out of us in real and tangible ways. Notice the end of verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Let me tell you, there's a couple different ways people translate that little phrase. As he is, so also are we in this world. Some people take it back to that positional sanctification, positional justification. In other words, Christ took our place, okay? So how God thinks of Christ is how he thinks of me because I'm in Christ. Awesome truth, isn't it? That when God looks at me, he doesn't see all my filth. He doesn't see all my failure. He sees Jesus' success. He sees Jesus, his work on my behalf. That's great. That's awesome. It's taught everywhere in the New Testament. I don't think that's what he means here, personally. Why? Because look at the end of it. As he is, so also are we in this world. You know what I think he's emphasizing based on the context of love? You know, you go down to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's lying. Okay. Based <laughs> on the context, I think what he's saying is. We are Jesus in the world. We should resemble Jesus. His love has been put in us. Now it ought to be coming out. It ought to be visible. Visible. You see why this is the assurance of salvation? It's because it ought to be Visible. You ought to be able to look at your life and see the love of God that you've received and embraced. And now it's coming out of you. You're loving people like Jesus has loved. You're being sanctified. You're changing. You're being transformed. And that is the evidence that you are free from the wrath of God. Because you resemble. You resemble Christ. Need more evidence that that's what it means? Go back to chapter 2. 2.28, Two twenty-eight. Little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Say, same thing: confidence in the day of judgment, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Verse twenty-nine. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. What's what's John say? Essentially the same thing, right? You confident in the day of his coming only if you're practicing righteousness as he is righteous. Only if you resemble him. Go down to chapter three, verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, Second Coming, judgment, we shall be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. Verse 3 Everyone who has thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. There it is again. How do we know? Because He changes us. His love's come into our heart, it transforms us, it comes out of us. Verse 18 says this, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. When you're living in love, there's no need to fear. No need to fear the judgment of God. If you're not living in love, yeah, there's reason to fear. And actually what we call that for believers is conviction. And believers don't stay in it. They get out quick, right? Let's say you uh, you go somewhere, you're you're mad. And you disparage somebody's character to somebody else. You you trash somebody. Okay, let's make it it more real. They deserve it. And it's true. Everything you said. As a believer, you get back in the car. How do you feel? How do you feel, believer? Conviction. I shouldn't have said that. What's happening there? God's love has been put in you. should be coming out. And when it doesn't, Believer gets convicted quick. God's bringing you back to himself. That never happens when you, when you love people, does it? Has that ever happened to you when you love people? Someone was kind of hurting, so you went over. Man, you tried to encourage them, spoke a good word, built them up, prayed for them, walked away. You ever be like, oh, that was terrible. Why did I do that? Why did I do that? That never happens. Why? No fear in love. Right? Perfected love. There's a real judgment that's coming. Man, that was so heavy on me yesterday. I just thought about you guys. I love you guys. Man, I, I just... I thought, the stakes are so high. And, and the Bible says we can't see each other's hearts. What we ought to be seeing, though, is visible fruit. That's, that's the assurance. That's the confidence that we belong to Him. As we resemble Him, His love's been put in us and now it's being perfected. The circuit's being complete. It's coming out. When we don't see that, that should be disturbing. Man, I tell you what's heavy on my heart is just, as believers, we can't stay in sin. Now, I tell you, as a pastor, I'm, I'm grieved at myself. I was, here's confession time. I was convicted yesterday. I was convicted of times when I don't think I've been strong enough with individuals I don't think I've loved them like I should in the sense of they're in sin and most of the time I will mention it i will I'll try to encourage them but a lot of times I hold back why, why do I, why do we hold back because we want to be liked right honestly we don't want to rock the boat we don't want to we don't want to hurt anybody. But man, as I was praying yesterday at my desk, I just thought, Jason, that's not loving people. I need to be diligent to go after their soul, to plead with them and pray for them and be diligent to encourage them out of sin, because there's no assurance for the man who's living habitually in sin. There's no assurance for that. This is a big deal. It should eclipse all the other fears. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us, Father, to be ready for your coming. Father, There, there's so many things that are just so, so apt to crowd this out. God, I, Father, help us not to get distracted by just the everyday stuff of life to where we, we don't take care of the big stuff. Father, we thank you, Jesus, that you've made a way for us not to be judged. Thank you, Jesus, that you've made a way that we not receive the wrath for our sins, but that you take it. Praise you, God. And Lord, help us to, to be certain we're, we're joined to you. I pray that we might see visibly uh, the love of Christ in our lives. Father, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.